This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Recollections of Rifleman Harris, read by Stephen Davis. Part 2. It was on the 15th of August when we first came up with the French, and their skirmishers immediately commenced operations by raining a shower of balls upon us as we advanced, which we returned without delay. The first man that was hit was Lieutenant Bunbury. He fell pierced through the head with a musket ball and died almost immediately. I thought I had never heard such a tremendous noise as the firing made on this occasion, and the men on both sides of me, I could occasionally observe, were falling fast. Being overmatched, we retired to a rising ground, or hillock, in our rear, and formed there all round its summit, standing three deep, the front rank kneeling. In this position, we remained all night, expecting the whole host upon us every moment. At daybreak, however, we received instructions to fall back as quickly as possible upon the main body. Having done so, we now laid down for a few hours rest, and then again advanced to feel for the enemy. On the 17th, being still in front, we again came up with the French, and I remember observing the pleasing effect afforded by the sun's rays glancing upon their arms as they formed in order of battle to receive us. Moving on in extended order, under whatever cover the nature of the ground afforded, together with some companies of the 60th, we began a sharp fire upon them, and thus commenced the Battle of Relica. I do not pretend to give a description of this, or any other battle I have been present at. All I can do is, to tell the things which happened immediately around me, and that, I think, is as much as a private soldier can be expected to do. Soon afterwards the firing commenced, and we had advanced pretty close upon the enemy, 
Taking advantage of whatever cover I could find, I threw myself down behind a small bank, where I lay so secure that, although the Frenchman's bullets fell pretty thickly around, I was enabled to knock several over without being dislodged. In fact, I fired away every round I had in my pouch whilst lying on this spot. At length, after a sharp contest, we forced them to give ground, and following them up, drove them from their position in the heights, and hung upon their skirts till they made another stand, and then the game began again. The rifles, indeed, fought well this day, and we lost many men. They seemed in high spirits, and delighted at having driven the enemy before them. Joseph Cockham was by my side, loading and firing very industriously about this period of the day. Thirsting with heat and action, he lifted his canteen to his mouth. Here's to you, old boy, he said, as he took a pull at its contents. As he did so, a bullet went through the canteen, and perforating his brain, killed him in a moment. Another man fell close to him almost immediately, struck by a ball in the thigh. Indeed, we caught it severely just here, and the old iron was also playing its part amongst our poor fellows very merrily. I saw a man named Simmons struck full in the face by a round shot, and he came to the ground a headless trunk. Meanwhile, many large balls bounded along the ground amongst us so deliberately that we could occasionally evade them without difficulty. I could relate many more of the casualties I witnessed on this day, but the above will suffice. When the roll was called after the battle, the females who missed their husbands came along the front of the line to inquire of the survivors whether they knew anything about them. Amongst other names I heard that of Cochran called, in a female voice, without being replied to. The name struck me, and I observed the poor woman who had called it, as she stood sobbing before us, and apparently afraid to make further inquiries about her husband. No man had answered to his name, or had any account to give of his fate. I myself had observed him fall, as related before, whilst drinking from his canteen, but as I looked at the poor sobbing creature before me, I felt unable to tell her of his death. At length, Captain Leach observed her, and called out to the company, Does any man here know what has happened to Cochran? If so, let him speak out at once. Upon this order, I immediately related what I had seen, and told the manner of his death. After a while, Mrs. Cochran appeared anxious to seek the spot where her husband fell, and in the hope of still finding him alive, asked me to accompany her over the field. She trusted, notwithstanding what I had told her, to find him yet alive. "'Do you think you could find it?' said Captain Leach, upon being referred to. I told him I was sure I could, as I had remarked many objects whilst looking for cover during the skirmishing. "'Go then,' said the captain and show the poor woman the spot, as she seems so desirous of finding the body. I accordingly took my way over the ground we'd fought upon, she following and sobbing after me, and quickly reaching the spot where her husband's body lay, pointed it out to her. She now soon discovered all her hopes were in vain. She embraced the stiffened corpse, and after rising and contemplating his disfigured face for some minutes, with hands clasped and tears streaming down her cheeks, she took a prayer book from her pocket, and kneeling down, repeated the service for the dead over the body. When she had finished, she appeared a good deal comforted, and I took the opportunity of beckoning to a pioneer I saw near with some other men, and together we dug a hole, and quickly buried the body. 
Mrs. Cochran then returned with me to the company to which her husband had been attached, and laid herself down upon the heath near us. She lay amongst some other females, who were in the same distressing circumstances with herself, with the sky for her canopy, and a turf for a pillow, for we had no tents with us. Poor woman, I pitied her much, but there was no remedy. If she had been a duchess, she must have fared the same. She was a handsome woman, I remember, and the circumstance of my having seen her husband fall, and accompanied her to find his body, begot a sort of intimacy between us. The company to which Cochran had belonged, bereaved as she was, was now her home, and she marched and took equal fortune with us to Vimero. She hovered about us during that battle, and then went with us to Lisbon, where she succeeded in procuring a passage to England. Such was my first acquaintance with Mrs. Cockham. The circumstances of our intimacy were singular, and a detachment grew between us during the short time we remained together. What little attention I could pay her during the hardships of the march I did, and I also offered on the first opportunity to marry her. She had, however, received too great a shock on the occasion of her husband's death ever to think of another soldier, she said. She therefore thanked me for my good feeling towards her, but declined my offer, and left us soon afterwards for England. It was on the 21st of August that we commenced fighting the Battle of Vimero. The French came down upon us in a column, and the riflemen immediately commenced a sharp fire upon them from whatever cover they could get a shelter behind, whilst our cannon played upon them from our rear. I saw regular lanes torn through their ranks as they advanced, which were immediately closed up again as they marched steadily on. Whenever we saw a round shot thus go through the mass, we raised a shout of delight. One of our corporals, named Murphy, was the first man in the rifles who was hit that morning, and I remember more particularly remarking the circumstance from his apparently having a presentiment of his fate before the battle began. He was usually an active fellow, and up to this time had shown himself a good and brave soldier, but on this morning he seemed unequal to his duty. General Fane and Major Travers were standing together on an early part of this day. The general had a spyglass in his hand, and for some time looked anxiously at the enemy. Suddenly he gave the word to fall in, and immediately all the bustle was amongst us. The Honourable Captain Packenham spoke very sharply to Murphy, who appeared quite dejected and out of spirits, I observed. He had a presentiment of death, which is by no means an uncommon circumstance, and I have observed it once or twice since this battle. Others besides myself noticed Murphy on this morning, and, as we had reason to know he was not ordinarily deficient in courage, the circumstance was talked of after the battle was over. He was the first man shot that day. Early on the morning of the battle, I remember being relieved from picket, and throwing myself down to gain a few hours repose before the expected engagement. So wearied was I with watching, that I was hardly prostrate before I was in a sound sleep, a sleep which those only have toiled in the field can know. I was not, however, destined to enjoy a very long repose, before one of our sergeants, poking me with the muzzle of his rifle, desired me to get up, as many of the men wanted their shoes repaired immediately. This was by no means an uncommon occurrence, and I would fain have declined the job, but several of the riflemen who had followed the sergeant soon afterwards came round me and threw their shoes and boots at my head. I was fain to scramble on my legs and make up my mind to go to work. On looking around, 
in order to observe if there was any hut or shed which I could more conveniently exercise my craft. I espied a house near at hand, on the rise of a small hill. So I gathered up several pairs of the dilapidated boots and shoes, and immediately made for it. Seating myself down in a small room, as soon as I entered, I took the tools from my haversack and prepared to work, and as the boots of the captain of my company were amongst the bad lot, and he was barefooted for want of them, I commenced with them. Hardly had I worked a quarter of an hour, when a cannonball, the first announcement of the coming battle, came crashing through the walls of the house, just above my head, and completely covered the captain's boot as it lay between my knees, with dust and fragments of the building. There were only two persons in the room at the time, an old and a young woman, and they were so dreadfully scared at this sudden visitation that they ran about the room, making the house echo with their shrieks, till at length they rushed out into the open air, leaving me alone with the boots around me on the floor. For my own part, although I was more used to such sounds, I thought it was no time and place to mend boots and shoes in. So, being thus left alone in my glory, I shook the dust from my apron, gathered up the whole stock in trade from the floor, and hastily replacing my tools in my haversack, followed the example of the mistress of the mansion and her daughter, and bolted out the house. When I got into the open air, I found all in a state of bustle and activity, the men falling in and the officers busily engaged, whilst twenty or thirty mouths opened at me the moment I appeared, calling out for their boots and shoes. "'Where's my boots, Harris, you humbug?' cried one. "'Give me my shoes, you old sinner,' said another. "'The captain boots here, Harris, instantly,' cried the sergeant. "'Make haste and fall into the ranks as fast as you can.' There was indeed no time for ceremony. So letting go the corners of my apron, I threw down the whole lot of boots and shoes for the men to choose for themselves, the captains being amongst the lot, with the wax ends hanging to them as I had left them when the cannonball so unceremoniously put a stop to my work, and quickly shouldering my piece, I fell into the ranks as I was ordered. Just before the battle commenced in earnest, and whilst the officers were busily engaged with their companies, shouting the word of command and arranging matters of moment, Captain Leach ordered a section of our men to move off, at double quick, and take possession of a windmill which was on our left. I was amongst this section, and set off full cry towards the mill, when Captain Leach espied, and roared out to me by name to return. Hello! There! You! Harris! He called. Fall out to that section directly! We want you here, my man! I therefore wheeled out of my rank, and returned to him. You fall in amongst the men here, Harris! He said. I shall not put you in that post. The cannon will play upon the mill in a few moments like hail. And what shall we do? He continued, laughing. Without our head shoemaker to repair our shoes. It is long since these transactions took place, but I remember the words of the captain as if they had been uttered yesterday. For that which was spoken in former years in the field has made a singular impression on my mind. As I looked about me while standing in ranked and just before the commencement of the battle, I thought it the most imposing sight the world could produce. Our lines glittering with bright arms, the stern features of the men as they stood with their eyes fixed, unalterably, upon the enemy. The proud colours of England floating over the heads of the different battalions, and in the dark cannon on the rising ground, and all in readiness to commence the awful work of death, with a noise that would deafen the whole multitude. Altogether, 
the sight had a singular and terrible effect upon the feelings of a youth who, a few short months before, had been a solitary shepherd upon the downs of Dorsetshire, and had never contemplated any other sort of life than the peaceful occupation of watching the innocent sheep as they fed upon the grassy turf. The first cannon shot I saw fired, I remember, was a miss. The artilleryman made a sad bungle, and the ball went wide of the mark. We were all looking anxiously to see the effect of this shot, and another of the gunners, a red-haired man, rushed at the fellow who had fired, and in the excitement of the moment, knocked him head over heels with his fist. Do you for a fool, he said. What sort of shot do you call that? Let me take the gun. He accordingly fired the next shot himself, and as soon as the gun was loaded, and so truly did he point it at the French column on the hillside, that we saw the fatal effect of the destructive missile by the lane it made and the confusion it caused. Our riflemen, who at the moment were amongst the guns, upon seeing this, set up a tremendous shout of delight, and the battle commencing immediately, we were all soon hard at work. I myself was very soon so hotly engaged, loading and firing away, enveloped in the smoke I created and the cloud which hung about me from the continued fire of my comrades, that I could see nothing for a few minutes but the red flash of my own piece amongst the white vapour clinging to my very clothes. This has often seemed to me the greatest drawback upon our present system of fighting, for whilst in such state, on a calm day, until some friendly breeze of wind clears the space around. A soldier knows no more of his position and what is about to happen in his front or what has happened, even amongst his own companions, than the very dead lying around. The rifles, as usual, were pretty busy in this battle. The French, in great numbers, came steadily down upon us and we pelted away upon them like a shower of laden hail. Under any cover we could find, we lay, firing one moment, jumping up and running for it the next, and, when we could see before us, we observed the cannibals making a lane through the enemy's columns as they advanced, huzzaring and shouting like madmen. Such is my remembrance of the commencement of the Battle of Vimero. The battle began on a fine, bright day, and the sun played on the arms of the enemy's battalions as they came on, as if they had been tipped with gold. The battle soon became general, the smoke thickened around, and often I was obliged to stop firing, and dash it aside from my face, and try in vain to get a sight of what was going on, whilst groans and shouts, and a noise of cannon and musketry, appeared almost to shake the very ground. It seemed hell upon earth, I thought. A man named John Lowe stood before me at this moment, and he turned round during a pause in our exertions, and addressed me. Harris, you humbug, he said. You have got plenty of money about you, I know, for you are always staying about and picking up what you can find on the field, but I think this will be your last field day, old boy. A good many of us will catch it, I suspect, today. You are right, Low, I said. I have got nine guineas in my pack, and if I am shot today and you yourself escape, it's quite at your service. In the meantime, however, if you see any symptoms of my wishing to flinch in this business, I hope you will shoot me with your own hand. Lo, as well as myself, survived this battle, and after it was over, whilst we sat down with our comrades and rested, amongst other matters talked over, 
Lowe told them of our conversation during the heat of the day and the money I had collected, and the rifles from that time had a great respect for me. It is, indeed, singular how a man loses or gains caste with his comrades from his behaviour, and how closely he is observed in the field. The officers, too, are commented upon and closely observed. The men are very proud of these who are brave in the field, and kind and considerate to the soldiers under them. An act of kindness done by an officer has often during the battle been the cause of his life being saved. Nay, whatever folks may say upon the matter, I know from experience that in our army, the men like best to be officered by gentlemen, men whose education has rendered them more kind in manners than your coarse officer, sprung from obscure origin, and whose style is brutal and overbearing. My observation has often led me to remark amongst men that those whose birth and station might reasonably have made them fastidious under hardship and toil have generally borne their miseries without a murmur, whilst those whose previous life, one would have thought, might have better prepared them for the toils of war have been the first to cry out and complain of their hard fate. And here let me bear testimony to the courage and endurance of that army under trials and hardships such as few armies, in any age, I should think, endured. I have seen officers and men hobbling forward, with tears in their eyes from the misery of long miles, empty stomachs and ragged backs, without even shoes or stockings on their bleeding feet, and it was not a little that would bring a tear into the eyes of a rifleman of the peninsula. Youths who had not long removed from their parents' home and care, officers and men, have borne hardships and privations such as, in our own peaceful days, we have little conception of, and yet these men, faint and weary with toil, would brighten up in a moment when the word ran amongst us that the enemy were at hand. I remember on the march from Salamanca seeing many men fail. Our marches were long and the weekly ones were found out. It was then pretty much everyone for himself. Those whose strength began to fail looked neither to the right nor the left, but with glassy eyes they kept onward, staggering on as well as they could. When once down, it was sometimes not easy to get up again, and few were inclined to help their comrades when their own strength was but small. On this march, I myself, strong as I was, felt completely done up, and fell in the streets of a town called, I think, Zamora, where I lay, like one dead, for some time. It was just at the close of the Battle of Vimero. The dreadful turmoil and noise of the engagement had hardly subsided, and I began to look into the faces of the men close around me, to see who had escaped the dangers of the hour. Four or five days back, I had done the same thing at Relika. One feels, indeed, a sort of curiosity to know, after such a scene, who is remaining alive amongst the companions endeared by good conduct or disliked from bad character. During the hardships of the campaign, I saw that the ranks of the riflemen looked very thin. It seemed to me one half had gone down. We had four companies of the 95th and were commanded that day by Major Travers, he was a man much liked by the men of the rifles, and indeed, deservedly beloved by all who knew him. He was a tight hand, but a soldier likes that better than a slovenly officer. I had observed him more than once during the day, spurring here and there, keeping the men well up, 
and apparently in the highest spirits. He could not have enjoyed himself more, I am sure, if he had been at a horse race or following a good pack of hounds. The battle was just over. A flag of truce had come over from the French. General Kellerman, I think, brought it. We threw ourselves down where we were standing when the fire ceased. A Frenchman lay close beside me. He was dying and called to me for water, which I understood him to require more from his manner than his words. He pointed to his mouth. I need not say that I got up and gave it him. Whilst I did so, down galloped the Major in front, just in the same good spirits he had been all day, plunging along, avoiding, with some little difficulty, the dead and dying, which were strewed about. He was never a very good-looking man, being hard-featured and thin, a hatchet-faced man, as we used to say. But he was a regular good'un, a real English soldier, and that's better than if he had been the most handsomest ladies' man in the army. The Major just now disclosed what none of us, I believe, knew before, namely, that his head was as bald as a coot's, and that he covered the nakedness of his knob, up to the present time, by a flowing caxon, which, during the heat of the action, had somehow been dislodged and was lost. Yet was the Major riding hither and thither, digging the spurs into his horse's flanks, and just as busy as before the firing had ceased. A guinea, he kept crying as he rode, to any man who will find my wig. The men, I remember, notwithstanding the sight of the wounded and dead around them, burst into shouts of laughter at him as he went, and a guinea to any man who will find my wig, was the saying amongst us long after that affair. Many a man has died in crossing a brook, it is said, who has escaped the broad waves of the Atlantic half a dozen times, the Major had escaped the shot and shell of the enemy in many a hard-fought field, and came off with credit and renown, but it is somewhat singular that Punch and Judy were the individuals who were destined by the fates to cut his thread of life, for his horse was startled one day, as he rode through the streets of Dublin City, by the clatter of those worthies made with their sticks in one of their domestic quarrels, and, swerving to one side, that noble soldier was killed. In the band of the 1st Battalion of the Rifles, we had a father and seven sons of the name of Commons. The elder son, who was called Fluellen, was the best musician of them all, and on the regiment going on service to Portugal, he was made bandmaster. Whilst fighting against Messena, Fluellen Commons, one night, took offence at a man named Cadogan, also belonging to our band, and, catching him at advantage, beat him so severely that he left him for dead. The transaction having been seen by some of the soldiery, Fluellen Common was fearful of the consequences and, supposing he had committed murder, fled to Marshal Messena's army, where he was received kindly and, in consequence of his musical knowledge, promoted to a good situation in the band of one of the French regiments. After a while, however, he made some mistake or other there, and, the French army being no safe place for him any longer, he once more chained service, and returned amongst his old companions, the Rifles, where he found, to his surprise, Cadogan in the ranks, sound and well again. This species of inconstancy, not being approved of by our leaders, he was tried by court-martial, and sentenced to be shot. Two or three other men, 
who had also committed heavy crimes, were under orders at the same time, I recollect, to undergo the same punishment. Colonel Beckwith was at that time our Lieutenant Colonel, and having a great respect for Common's father, made application to the Duke of Wellington for a pardon for his son Fluellen. Accordingly, when he was brought forth amongst the other criminals, it was notified to him that, taking into consideration the interest made by his Lieutenant Colonel, he should be forgiven, but the Duke, I understand, desired it to be expressly stated to him that if he ever detected him in the country again, in the garb of a soldier in the British service, nothing should save him from punishment. Common, therefore, left Spain, without the good wish of a single man in our corps, for he was pretty well known to be altogether a bad subject. Meanwhile, the news had reached his friends in England that he had been shot, and his wife, having quickly found a substitute, was married again, when he thought proper, somewhat tardily, to seek his home. At first the meeting was a rather stormy one, and the neighbours thought that murder would ensue, for Common found himself provided not only with a locum tenens, but also with a little baby, neither of whom he could possibly have any great liking for. However, matters were eventually amicably arranged, and Fluellen Common, having made out his claim, and satisfied the second husband that he had never had a musket ball in his body, broke up the establishment and took his wife off to Hythe in Kent, where he again enlisted in a third battalion of the rifles and joined them at Shoreham Cliff. In the third battalion, he once more displayed his art and, from his excellence as a musician, was made master of the band. Not satisfied with his good fortune, he again misconducted himself and was once more reduced to the ranks. After a while, he succeeded in getting exchanged to the 85th Regiment, where he likewise managed to insinuate himself into the good graces of the commanding officer, and by his musical talents also, once more, into the situation of master of the band. Here, he might have yet retrieved himself and lived happily, but he began to cut fresh capers, and his ill disposition and drunken conduct were so apparent the moment he got into an easy way of life, that it was found impossible to keep him in the situation, and he was again reduced, and eventually entirely dismissed as too bad for anything. One of his brothers had, meanwhile, obtained the situation he had held in the 1st Battalion of the Rifles, and was greatly respected for his good conduct. He was killed, I remember, at Vittoria, by a cannonball striking his head from his shoulders. The other five commons, as far as I ever knew, lived and prospered in the service. The old father was eventually discharged and received a pension. What was, however, the ultimate fate of the bad sheep of his flock, Fluellen Common, and whether he had ever succeeded in becoming a bandmaster in the service of any other country, or whether he had ultimately reached a still more elevated situation, I never heard. But should think from all I knew and have related that it was not likely he ever came to good. I remember meeting with General Napier before the Battle of Vimero. He was then, I think, a major, and the meeting made so great an impression on me, I have never forgotten him. I was posted in a wood the night before the battle, in front of our army, where two roads crossed each other. The night was gloomy, and I was the very out-century of the British army. As I stood on my post, peering into the thick wood around me, I was aware of footsteps approaching, and challenged in a low voice. Receiving no answer, 
I brought my rifle to the port and bade the strangers come forward. They were Major Napier, then of the 50th foot, I think, and an officer of the rifles. The Major advanced close up to me and looked hard in my face. Be alert here, sentry, said he, for I expect the enemy upon us tonight, and I know not how soon. I was a young soldier then, and the lonely situation I was in, together with the impressive manner in which Major Napier delivered his caution, made a great impression on me, and from that hour I have never forgotten him. Indeed, I kept careful watch all night, listening to the slightest breeze amongst the foliage, in expectation of the sudden approach of the French. They ventured not, however, to molest us. Henry Jessup, one of my companions in the rifles, sank and died of fatigue on this night, and I recollect some of our men burying him in the wood at daybreak, close to my post. During the battle, next day, I remarked the gallant style in which the 50th, Major Napier's regiment, came to the charge. They dashed upon the enemy like a torrent breaking bounds, and the French, unable even to bear the sight of them, turned and fled. Methinks at this moment I can hear the cheer of the British soldiers in the charge, and the clatter of the Frenchmen's accoutrements as they turned in an instant and went off, hard as they could run for it. I remember too, our feeling towards the enemy on that occasion was the north side of Friendly, for they had been firing upon us rifles very sharply, greatly outnumbering our skirmishers and appearing inclined to drive us off the face of the earth. Their lights and grenadiers, I, for the first time, particularly remarked on that day, the Grenadiers, the 70 if I think, our men seemed to know well. They were all fine-looking young men, wearing red shoulder knots and tremendous-looking moustaches. As they came swarming upon us, they rained a perfect shower of balls, which we returned quite as sharply. Whenever one of them was knocked over, our men called out, There goes another of Boney's Invincibles! In the main body, immediately in our rear, were the 2nd Battalion 52nd, the 50th, the 2nd Battalion 43rd, and a German corps, whose number I do not remember, besides several other regiments. The whole line seemed annoyed and angered at seeing the rifles outnumbered by the Invincibles, and as we fell back, firing and retiring, galling them handsomely as we did, so the men cried out, as if it were with one voice, to charge. Down them! they roared. Charge! Charge! General Fane, however, restrain their impetuosity. He desired them to stand fast and keep their ground. Don't be too eager, men, he said, as coolly as if they were on a drill parade in England. I don't want you to advance just yet. Well done, 95th, he called out as he galloped up and down the line. Well done, 43rd, 52nd, and well done all. I'll not forget, if I live, to report your conduct today. They shall hear of it in England, my lads. A man named Brotherwood, of the 95th, at this moment rushed up to the general and presented him with a green feather, which he had torn out of the cap of a French light infantry soldier he had killed. God bless you, general, he said. Wear this for the sake of the 95th. I saw the general take the feather and stick it in his cocked hat. The next minute he gave the word to charge and down came the whole line through a tremendous fire of cannon and musketry and dreadful was the slaughter as they rushed onwards. And they came up with us. We sprang to our feet, gave one hearty cheer, 
and charged along with them, treading over our own dead and wounded who lay in the front. The 50th were next to us as we went, and I recollect, as I said, the firmness of that regiment in the charge. They appeared like a wall of iron. The enemy turned and fled, the cavalry dashing upon them as they went off. After the day's work was over, while strolling about the field, just upon the spot where this charge had taken place, I remarked a soldier of the 43rd and a French grenadier, both dead and lying close together. They had apparently killed each other at the same moment, for both weapons remained in the bodies of the slain. Brotherwood was lying next to me during a part of this day. He was a Leicestershire man and was killed afterwards by a cannonball at Vittoria. I remember his death more particularly from the circumstance of that very ball killing three of the company at the same moment, Lieutenant Hopwood, Patrick Mahone and himself. Brotherwood was amongst the skirmishers with me on this day. He was always a lively fellow, but rather irritable in disposition. Just as the French went to the right about, I remember he'd shout at them furiously, and all his bullets being gone, he grabbed a razor from his haversack, rammed it down and fired it after them. During this day, I myself narrowly escaped being killed by our own dragoons, for somehow or other, in the confusion, I fell whilst they were charging, and the whole squadron thundering past just missed me, as I lay amongst the dead and wounded, tired and overweighted with my knapsack and all my shoemaking implements. I lay where I'd fallen for a short time, and watched the cavalry as they gained the enemy. I observed a fine, gallant-looking officer leading them on the charge. He was a brave fellow and bore himself like a hero, with his sword waving in the air. He cheered the men on as he went dashing upon the enemy and hewing and slashing at them in tremendous style. I watched for him as the dragoons came off after that charge, but saw him no more. He had fallen. Fine fellow. His conduct indeed made an impression upon me that I shall never forget, and I was told afterwards that he was a brother of Sir John Eustace. A French soldier was lying beside me at this time. He was badly wounded, and hearing him moan as he lay, after I had done looking at the cavalry, I turned my attention to him, and, getting up, lifted his head and poured some water into his mouth. He was dying fast, but he thanked me in a foreign language, which, although I did not exactly understand, I could easily make out by the look he gave me. Mullins, of the rifles, who stepped up whilst I supported his head, took me for a fool for my pains. Better knock out his brains, Harris, said he. He has done us mischief enough. I'll be bound for it today. After the battle, I strolled about the field, in order to see if there was anything to be found worth picking up amongst the dead. The first thing I saw was a three-pronged silver fork, which, as it lay by itself, had most likely been dropped by some person who had been on the lookout before me. A little further on, I saw a French soldier sitting against a small rise in the ground or bank. He was wounded in the throat and appeared very faint, the bosom of his coat being saturated with blood which had flowed down. By his side lay his cap, and close to that was a bundle containing a quantity of gold and silver crosses, which I concluded he had plundered from some convent or church. He looked the picture of a sacrilegious thief, dying hopelessly and overtaken by divine wrath. I kicked over his cap, which was also full of plunder, but I declined taking anything from him. I felt fearful 
of incurring the wrath of heaven for the like offence, so I left him and passed on. A little further off lay an officer of the 50th Regiment. I knew him by sight and recognised him as he lay. He was quite dead and lying on his back. He had been plundered and his clothes were torn open. Three bullet holes were close together in the pit of his stomach. Beside him lay an empty pocketbook and his epaulette had been pulled from his shoulder. I had moved on but a few paces when I recollected that perhaps the officer's shoes might serve me my own being considerably the worse for wear, so I returned again, went back, pulled one of his shoes off, and knelt down on one knee to try it on. It was not much better than my own, however. I determined on the exchange and proceeded to take off its fellow. As I did, so I was startled by the sharp report of a firelock, and at the same moment, a bullet whistled close by my head. Instantly starting up, I turned and looked in the direction whence the shot had come. There was no person near me in this part of the field. The dead and the dying lay thickly all around, but nothing else could I see. I looked to the priming of my rifle and again turned to the dead officer of the 50th. It was evident that some plundering scoundrel had taken a shot at me and the fact of his doing so proclaimed him one of the enemy. To distinguish him amongst the bodies strewn about was impossible. Perhaps he might himself be one of the wounded. Hardly had I effected the exchange, put on the dead officer's shoes and resumed my rifle, when another shot took place and a second ball whistled past me. This time I was ready, and turning quickly, I saw my man. He was just about to squat down behind a small mound, about twenty paces from me. I took a haphazard shot at him and instantly knocked him over. I immediately ran up to him. He had fallen on his face, and I heaved him over on his back bestrode his body and drew my sword bayonet. There was, however, no occasion for the precaution, as he was even then in the agonies of death. It was a relief to me to find that I had not been mistaken. He was a French light infantryman, and I therefore took it quite in the way of business. He had attempted my life and lost his own. It was the fortune of war. So, stooping down with my sword, I cut the green string that sustained his calibash and I took a hearty pull to quench my thirst. 